hailed as the future of music videos, a project called The Wilderness Downtown was the kind of technological flex that when you were sent the link, you had to get everyone to come and have a look at it. I used to At its centre was the arcade fire song, We Used to Wait. It was the year 2010. It was a project that used the new-ish power of Google Chrome and Google Street View to deliver nostalgia, personalised to me, the viewer. The music video opens with a pop-up window. In it, there's a close-up of a person running. It's night. And then another pop-up. Birds flying in formation over the same dusty yellow sky. Imagine these pop-ups as a sort of dance. They're choreographed and complementary, not grating, as pop-ups could be. But then the line... A new window opens, and it's this aerial view of a neighbourhood. And it looks kind of familiar, until finally the music video collides with me in my own life. I can see my childhood home, and the house across the street as the camera pans around literally the place I grew up. It's pretty hard to explain in a podcast, but the experience was hugely intimate. For me personally, the video changed the way I thought about technology and the combination of digital creativity and music, and it changed the way we did things at WeTransfer entirely. It expanded what we thought was possible The Wilderness Downtown was a collaboration between Google and Arcade Fire, but much more than that, it was a collaboration between a director and a band and a person whose ideas about data visualization have continually set the standard for what can be done at the intersection of art and technology. I'm Damien Bradfield, and this is Influence, a podcast by WeTransfer about the hidden gems, the hotspots, and dark alleys in the world of communication. On today's episode, we talk to Aaron Koblin. Aaron is an artist, designer, programmer, and entrepreneur. He's the co-founder of the virtual and augmented reality company Within, alongside Chris Milk, where they created the first VR fitness service called Supernatural. For years, he ran the data arts team at Google, where he worked with Arcade Fire on the Wilderness Downtown. He's also won an Emmy for his work. Aaron, thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me. So the last time I actually talked to you, it was to talk about big data and, uh, and the book that I was writing at the time. And that was at a time where there was a bit of a turning point around big data. You know, certainly you were, I think, on the fence as to you know, your views and you were a lot more optimistic than certainly I was, that's for sure. Since then, a lot of optimism has disappeared in the world of big tech and certainly in, the, in around data. But has, has your opinion changed? Are you still as much of an advocate as you were? I don't know if I'd ever called myself an advocate as much as an optimist, uh, a deliberate techno-optimist. And it's not because I don't see you know, the, the challenges that we're up against. It's mostly that like, I, I kind of feel personal responsibility to try to push things the right direction because it feels like Luddites and, and reversing the course of history is a pretty unlikely course. So there's, if there's an inevitability, we should all just try to chip in and make it the best circumstance we can and continue to push and speak and advocate for things that will make the world a little bit better. So I, I would say, um, yes, things have progressed. Yes, I probably lose more sleep and I'm more anxious, but I, I'd still consider myself overall optimistic that you know we're going to be able to save ourselves from the beasts we create. So talk us through a bit of your background, because I've known you for a, a few years now, but 
I first, you know, fell in love with the work that you guys were doing when, when I saw The Wilderness Downtown. The studio really inspired us to work a little bit harder, to be honest, to try to, you know, think about what potential there was for technology combined with creativity, combined with music even. And I think you guys understood that better than anybody else. Thanks. Chris Milk and, and myself, you know, we've always just been fascinated by technology and the ways we can apply it to making art and crafting human experiences. Since we last spoke and since we were working on things like the Arcade Fire project you just mentioned, we've really been focused on immersive technology as the next chapter in that, like, what are virtual reality and augmented reality to do to kind of democratize the art making process and the, and the idea of kind of human scale and embodied digital experiences. In some ways, it's very much just the extension of those projects you were referencing using the internet and digital technology for things like the Johnny Cash Project. For those that don't know, maybe you could explain the Johnny Cash Project a bit more. Sure, yeah. I think in a nutshell, Johnny Cash had just passed away and Rick Rubin had, uh, you know, kind of the final recordings, uh, this album that was going to be put out. And one of the songs was called Ain't No Grave. And it's kind of Johnny singing about his virtual resurrection. At least that was our interpretation of it. There ain't no grave can hold my body down there ain't no grave can hold my body down you know it's a really kind of emotional and intense song singing about ain't no grave can hold my body down and it felt like the perfect moment to get people from across the world to participate in a crowdsourced collaborative music video where every single frame would be hand-drawn by a different person. So you can actually watch this narrative pass through all the individual interpretations on kind of a frame-by-frame basis. So that was uh, actually the first project that Chris and I worked on together and kind of kicked off this partnership of using digital technologies for art making. Did you have any idea that it would resonate like it did? No, it's kind of actually crazy to think back at how much work we put into building this whole system and platform for a drawing tool that was web-based and an automatic assembler and like just investing all kinds of time and resource and having this like, if we build it, will they come moment of flipping the switch. And how big were you back then? How, how many people were you? Uh, I mean, it was Chris and myself. And that we were able to get one amazing programmer by the name of Mr. Dube, who later went on to make the 3JS programming language. But, you know, it was a very small project. It was just a handful of us. And then we ended up getting thousands of people to hop in. And I think that was one of the most fulfilling moments probably of my life to date was to just watch a black screen and see the thumbnails start popping up from people from Johnny Cash communities on online to deviant art and you know different message boards and see these different types of people coming together to support Johnny and the project and see this thing come together uh, with no financial reward. It was like, what happens if we all work together and build something? I definitely like that spirit of things more. Do you think it would be possible to replicate that today? It's a great question. I don't know. I think that it was undoubtedly fueled in part by the moment. The internet wasn't new, but the phase of like rich media online and the idea of crowdsourcing hadn't even really been, maybe it was like a few months old as a term. I think now, you know, we've got TikTok and we've got sea shanties. It's so hard to say what's going to catch fire and what's going to happen. I'd have to believe that there would still be the kind of passion and appreciation for Johnny Cash and for the, you know, the kind of context that we created. But it's really hard. I'd say there's so many people focused on trying to make the next big meme or viral sensation. And I don't think you can really create the recipe the same way you used to. I don't know that you can engage the same levels of energy online today. But Maybe it's because so many brains are, 
spending their time in the crypto space and the machine learning space. And there's there's so much exciting stuff to investigate. But even that stuff, you know, it doesn't seem like it's tailored as much at creative expression as it is towards predictable applications, <laughs> financial means, etc. Again, you you were Google, right? So you ran the data arts team at Google. Does that data arts team still exist even? You know, I need to check in. It's uh, it certainly evolved after I left. Um, still some really awesome people there working on cool things. But it seemed like it, it kind of took on a little different place uh, after my departure. Certainly the creative lab exists in full force and is still doing some pretty remarkable things, um, mostly based out of New York instead of San Francisco. But you left there in 2015, and did you set up within in 2015? I did, yeah. It was uh, an immediate transition to begin within. In all honesty, I, I wouldn't have left Google probably because it was a bit of a dream job working with some incredible people. But it felt like the moment that I needed to try to take a swing at this new endeavor. And I think, you know, certainly virtual reality and augmented reality felt like they were having a moment and uh, to play a bigger role in that conversation. It was the right move, I think, to go off and start something. Maybe you can help differentiate augmented reality from virtual reality. Have you got a clear definition of the two that can help people understand the difference? I think the basic premise was originally supposed to be virtual reality is simulating reality and it's putting you into a completely synthetic alternate place, whereas augmented reality is somehow taking the reality that you're observing and present in and augmenting it with graphics and sounds and you know things to make it feel like there are layers of you know additional information on top of our normal world. It, it, in the simplest way, one, you could see the real world and there's stuff on it. And the other one, it's just a completely virtual experience. And so you chose to set up within with Chris Milk, uh, focusing primarily on a completely virtual experience. Yeah. Is that because you hate the real world? <laughs> no, definitely not. Um, and, it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that we were excluding augmented reality. I think for us, virtual reality afforded some really incredible creative applications and potential. We had been doing museum installations. Like we, we did a thing at the Tate Modern called This Exquisite Forest. Amazing. Maybe you could explain a bit what it was. Yeah. It was basically a project which allowed collaboration with anybody who wanted to through the website to see the beginning of an idea created by somebody amazing like Julian Opie or Olafur Eliasson. And they could actually create a small animation in kind of an exquisite corpse format where you see the last frame and you can continue the animation for a few frames. And then other people would build off that in a branching kind of like GitHub style evolutionary narrative. And it was amazing because people would contribute from all over the world or there in the museum, but then they could also see it up on the wall in the Tate, their own creation as a piece of something that was being created by the community and by everybody involved. That feeling of being there and seeing something that was represented at a scale that you could relate to, it just has a different kind of impact than, especially now, looking at your iPhone or Android phone on this teeny little two-inch screen. It can be amazing, especially intellectually, but not viscerally, not at the scale of human perception. And it felt like virtual reality had the, was the opportunity to democratize access to that experience. You could have you know, somebody in Mumbai who puts on a headset and all of a sudden they're in the Swiss Alps painting with a three-dimensional paintbrush and listening to some kind of music they maybe never heard before. And, you know, that's just the beginning. In some ways, virtual reality feels like the ultimate medium because it can embody and combine 
all of the other mediums except for touch and smell yet. Like we're, we're not there on those senses. But if you think about radio and television and cinema and sculpture and everything can exist inside this other medium and then it can be distributed and interacted with globally. So the projects like the Johnny Cash Project and the Exquisite Forest and those sort of installation pieces, do they exist somewhere still? I mean, so much energy and effort goes into them. What happens to them thereafter? Yeah, I mean, digital preservation is not at a high point. Most of these projects have gone with the technologies that are dying. I'm kind of casually preserving them through video and web documentation, but it, you know, it, it's not in a firsthand experience kind of way. It's in a like relic kind of way. Yeah. It's a bit of a sad thing, but it's also just life, right? So let's go into where you are today. So you're in within, are you guys still going to the office? No, no. You have we, a magnificent office, I would say, a bit of office envy. Yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of funny that it took a pandemic to make us actually embrace virtual reality. <laughs> like we, we were still pretty <laughs> wedded to like, especially Chris, having a nicely designed office and going in every single day and really enforcing the like, we all show up face to face. But now obviously that's not an option and we've taken it to the next level. So yeah, we're, we're still technically Los Angeles based, but I, I don't know if that's going to last. The way that I always describe you guys is you're sort of building out HBO for VR and the products that you have, you know, are aimed at a certain price point, aimed at a certain individual. And certainly the latest that I've seen from you guys in Supernatural is pretty spectacular. I was a bit skeptical that, you know, I would enjoy it. <laughs> I was too. Well, let's explain what Supernatural is for the people that don't know. That'd be great. Sure, sure, sure. To talk about Supernatural, in a nutshell, imagine you are in your bedroom or in your living room. You put on these magical glasses and next thing you know, you're standing in the Swiss Alps or you're standing in Machu Picchu or some beautiful, realistic, real-world place. And a coach pops up and introduces you to the sport from the future where glass balls are going to be flung at you and you're going to break them with baths, smash them to smithereens. Meanwhile, you're like ducking and lunging and moving out of the way. And you're basically getting a great workout, but it doesn't feel like a workout. The impetus for the project was basically that Chris and I hate home exercise. It's just a terrible experience. If you're, if you're the kind of person who likes sit-ups or spin classes, then there's a lot of great digital products for you. But if you're the kind of person who prefers snowboarding or beach bike riding or likes you know, using your body, maybe dancing, there really aren't that many incredible at-home products. And we thought, why is it that we can't take the ideas of sport and dance and things that are really fun to do that are more objective-driven and pair them with music that you know and love, which is a key piece to get you engaged and get you loving the experience, and then put you in photorealistic places? I think it's genius. I reactivated my Facebook account in order to use Supernatural. And I've got to say, it's pretty amazing. I've demoed many different VR experiences from rock climbing games to boxing and everything else. But it really felt as if I was being transplanted in Thailand or somewhere. And, you know, you can hear the waves, you can hear calm. Yeah. I use a sad lamp at home because living back in Europe, it's grey 15 hours a day. And um, just 30 minutes of, you know, having a headset on and planted in Thailand or Machu Picchu or wherever else, really it felt quite meditative. It's quite good fun. It's not this lonely experience that VR often is, where you've, mm, you know, yeah. you look like a bit of a moron in the corner of the room with a headset on, <laughs> you know, shaking your arms. But you know, you can't see yourself, so it's totally fine. I thought it was really cool. <laughs> this for me was one of the first instances where VR can really think, okay, this this serves a purpose, particularly during this period. It's really well executed, and of course, you guys better than anybody managed to combine film and music and experience all in one. I mean, the things people need right now are basically 
to travel and see some different scenery because we're all trapped at home. They need to move their bodies, get off the couch and get some healthy movement in their lives. And they don't want to be alone. True. The, the feeling of community and personal connection of, of having you know, a real human sitting there without a mask talking to you and then the ability to connect and share in your accomplishments with other people through the app it's huge. In a in a confined space, that's very important too. You can you can have two square meters and still feel like you're, you know, you're in a space that's a thousand miles wide. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the benefits definitely it's fun. And that's kind of one of the inspiring principles and backbones of the product. But I think there's a real mental benefit that comes from moving your body and having these kinds of experiences, you know, on a so, somewhat regular cadence. At least I find it changes my outlook for the day. Do you use it every day? I, I don't. I use it probably three times a week. Okay. It, it depends a little bit. Um, I just had a son, so my schedule has been impacted. <laughs> kind of uh, very happily playing dad, but also learning about what sleep deprivation means in a whole new way. But uh, before uh, he was born, I was using it almost every day, and it makes me feel great. No, it felt to me that, I mean, the early days of the internet was all... You know, quite hobbyist, and then of course the sex industry took on uh, you know a big chunk of it, and still today dominates sixty percent or seventy percent of the internet. I don't know, don't even know want to know what it is. Yeah. And with VR, when it first came out, it, you know everybody put it on and we're like, oh yeah, let's do roller coasters because you've got to get a rush. Oh yeah. You know you've got to get this amazing. You can create adrenaline. We can get you pumped up and and feisty. And actually, when when I put on Supernatural, it was the first time that actually I thought this is the application. The application is actually about calm. It's about, you know, being transplanted somewhere else and being able to get out of the surroundings that may be, you know, 16th floor of an apartment building in downtown Lebanon or something or other. You, you can completely disappear from it all. That's priceless. The fundamental paradigm is different, right? Like the paradigm of copy somebody else doing something that's not all that fun versus kind of create a sport, a kind of interaction that you just couldn't do any other way. And I think that's always been one of my litmus tests for technology is what does it bring that you couldn't accomplish any other way? Like if you could just do this without a VR headset, that would be the better thing. Right. Like the VR headset in and of itself is negative. Like it's, it's a bit of a bummer. Yeah. It's, it's not extremely comfortable. It's a little bit isolating. You know, I, I will say since the last time we spoke, it's come so far, like it's now $299. You don't need a computer. You don't need cables. You don't need sensors. It's so much more accessible. But at the end of the day, like you're still strapping something on your face and you probably wish you weren't. But the trade-off for doing that is amazing. And you're lucky, right? Because I mean, so gyms are closed and you're strapped something on your face every day anyway. So we're, exactly. we're very used to it. Again, you're just visionary. Well, I think that the, the opportunity is to really like make people feel like they are superheroes. You can do things that are just literally impossible any other way to visualize your movements and to allow you to lift a car. You know, <laughs> like the potential is limitless for the, the kinds of things that you could dream up in this media. My kids are 12 and 15 and what I can see with them is that there's a lot of frustration at the moment because they can't socialize, mm -hmm. they can't really connect with their friends. And if I see my kids getting frustrated, the ability to be able to put on a headset and a set of headphones and just sit and actually take 10 minutes out, if I ask them to meditate, it's not really something that they're interested in. You know, they might do it and humor me, mm -hmm. but they don't really want to sit down because again, it boring, right? It's, as you say, it's sort of like doing a bit of exercise. Yeah, yeah. Whereas this feels like you're playing a game, but actually the game is helping you just have a little reset. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. We've also added in 
inching people towards that meditative experience. We have a thing called moments now, which is basically you pop up into a beautiful photorealistic place and you just kind of chill out there for a minute. And it's actually really delightful. I think one of the things people love about traveling is getting out of their familiar zone and allowing themselves to kind of look at the world through a fresh lens for a brief moment. Most humans do need an excuse to do that. Obviously, we could walk down the street and have a delightful moment, but uh, usually it takes a very expensive plane ticket to get us sufficiently out of our realm in order to actually have those vacation moments and, and look at the world fresh. You know, this is an interesting way to give a lot of people that experience quickly and in a repeatable way. Right. And hopefully it will inspire similar kinds of moments and activities out of headset. At the end of the day, the pandemic absolutely sucks and is terrible. And sometimes I even feel a little bit guilty that it's arguably benefiting us when it's hurting so many. I would not want for this circumstance. But at the end of the day, there's an opportunity for us to learn from it. You mentioned at one point that the machine, the device on your face is irritating. Is there a future where there isn't one? Well, I mean, it's, it's definitely getting better I think on the headset side, the weight is getting much lighter. The profile is getting slimmer. The liners and facial interface is what they call it. It's becoming more comfortable. It's becoming more sweat resistant. Things are, are advancing the right way for the head-mounted displays. As you're alluding to, there's other options. People are experimenting with glasses frames and using small projectors to, uh, especially in the augmented reality side, make it even less kind of obstructive uh, on your face. There's other people on the far more extreme, like Elon Musk with Neuralink and others that are talking about tapping directly into the brain. I think we're pretty far out from getting to a VR, AR style experience. But if we if we weren't, do you think that would be exciting? Do you think that would be an interesting space? I mean, it would certainly be fascinating. If you're asking, would I be excited about tapping directly into my brain? Um, not in the short term. <laughs> like It's purely for practical reasons, not so much philosophical. Yeah, I, I hate needles. <laughs> Blood creeps me out. <laughs> uh, you know, it starts to really get into pretty interesting philosophical territory about the way we think about where we begin and how our bodies and brains interact and interplay. There's a lot of other ethical concerns we're going to have to confront first <laughs> as a, as a species but i you know there's there's very undeniably people focused on those fields is that a space that you guys are looking at no i'm definitely interested in haptics especially non-invasive technologies that will allow us to use touch and frankly advance our ability to move our bodies i, I think virtual reality if there's anything we've discovered in the last six years of meddling in this stuff, and, and again, I'd love to say it was a deliberate move to get into exercise, but it was the result of our learnings. We built things like Life of Us, which were you know, multi-person narratives where you and your friends could travel through the course of evolution together. And what that really meant was we would put you in the body of a tadpole, we'd put you in the body of a pterodactyl, we'd put you in the body of... Of a dinosaur. A dinosaur. I, I was a dinosaur at South by Southwest a few years ago. Yeah, exactly. And the fun of it is figuring out, like, how do I use my human body to be a pterodactyl? Like, what does that mean? And I think right. it's incredibly fun to experiment with short-term neuroplasticity. How can I rewire my brain to learn how to do something that I'm not even really doing? But it's really cool. And I think there's so much more we can and need to do from a sensor perspective to get our full bodies in these systems and to, to figure out more precisely, like, what is our posture? Are we doing things in a healthy way? 
at one point there was a lot of talk around um, VR and uh, increasing empathy, but we don't seem to talk about the empathy part much anymore. Do you think the expectations for VR were too high? You know, it's funny. My co-founder, Chris, is credited with being like the empathy guy. He, he gave a TED talk where he talked about the empathy machine. And I mean, he, he basically stole a line from Robert Ebert and he just emphasized the fact that if film was an empathy machine, which he believes it is, virtual reality is even more so. Film as an empathy machine does not mean I can watch a film and immediately become an empathetic person. It's just if I am open to the idea of empathizing, then the more that I can relate to and connect with somebody, the more I can have a truly empathetic experience. And I think film does that, I believe undeniably so. It, it supplements and augments feelings of empathy that you you have. It's, it's all within you. But I think with virtual reality, it's even more so because you have such a visceral embodied experience being in a place and making eye contact with a person face to face that your primal nature feels vulnerable. And a lot of it really is vulnerability. It's, it's you let your guard down and you allow yourself to feel things and connect to people and places in ways that may be easier to not. But I think for those that are interested and willing, it can give you even more ammunition firepower with which to build a narrative, because that's ultimately what it is at the end of the day, is do you adopt a narrative of empathy and ideally compassion, or do you not? Do you look coldly at the world? And it's so easy to do that now, especially with so many distractions. So Facebook in this instance is holding the cards with regards to VR. They pretty much dominate the VR world. You know, if it's down to Facebook, they can determine how much content you might or might not see that may or may not be relevant to you or may not steer your opinion or your political sway in one direction or another. The amount of information that's being gathered, the amount of data that one company is holding could, of course, be used against you or for, for bad as well as for good. Do you have any concern there at all with the, the amount of information that's being collected in, in its totality? Yeah, I mean, I think anybody who's paying attention to the trajectory of digital life should be concerned. I think that the challenges and issues go even beyond Facebook. Uh, you know, it's easy, I think, to single out an entity and say, look at them, they're evil. There are inherent challenges with data aggregation. And right now we don't have very clear articulations of ownership or data flows or ramifications of when large data sets get combined with one another. I know a lot of people that work at these large corporations and a lot of them are good people. And it's a challenge because I, I don't want to let them off the hook. These are serious topics and they're not doing enough, in my opinion. But at the same time, the more you dig into them and real applications for ways they can improve the circumstance, it's not a simple challenge. No. I think too, too little was done too late regarding some of the censorship decisions for our, for our most recent president and otherwise. But at the same time, it's not cut and dry. Like, who's to say that corporations should be the ultimate arbiters of free information? How can they decide what's free speech and what's not? And personally, I have strong emotional reactions and opinions. And if I was running those companies, I would have made a hell of a lot of decisions a hell of a lot sooner, and I would have locked down a lot. But would that have been the right choice, right? Like sitting back and being able to take a more philosophical assessment, not only would it have been the right choice philosophically, would it have led to a better outcome in terms of 
creating more of the dark web, you know, creating more channels for people to be having these conversations less in the light. I struggle with like sunlight and openness of information as a, a means to start conversations and try to keep things uh, in public discourse versus driving them underground and, and creating a lot of other problems. In a nutshell, it's not simple. And even the, the kind of like technology will save us all, the utopian in me that wants to say, well, we can just, you know, if the incentives were better aligned, they'd be creating better neural nets that would understand the context and understand, and they'd be able to figure out, like, is this manipulative? I'm not expecting you to necessarily have the answer to all of these questions. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I'm a bit disappointed you can't solve society's issues just in this uh, brief 45 minutes. Yeah. But the truth is, like, it is not black and white. And I think unleashing machine learning to try to enforce free speech is not a step in the right direction, necessarily. Uh, and I think it's just absolutely not sustainable to try to police uh, in a private sector kind of way at the scale that these things are operating. So do I think more can and should be done? Absolutely. Am I letting them off the hook? No. But at the same time, when I talk to people who are, frankly, a lot smarter than I am about methods to fix these things, and you start to really tease them apart, I haven't heard a lot of really great solutions that I am confident will be a net positive. At the end of the day, I think it all comes back to investing in education and investing in humans to try to hold humans accountable and responsible for their own actions. And this is not, again, to defend Facebook. I think the idea of attributing identity to a certain kind of discourse is actually really interesting because part of what I see on Reddit and I see happening in some of these other communities of toxicity are people who aren't acting the way they would act in real life. No, sure. You know, they're, they're not acting with respect. They're not acting with the intent to listen. They're not acting with the intent to try to solve anything. Jared Lanier, uh, who's one of the pioneers of virtual reality and been a great inspiration, gave a TED Talk fairly recently. And I thought it was really interesting just to look at it from a practical standpoint about how cheap and easy it is to tear something down and profit from it. You know, if you imagine it takes 50 to 100 years to grow an incredible tree, it takes no time at all to chop it down and use the, use the wood to burn an, you know, an amazing fire. The analogy is the same, right? Like we have amazing intellectual property. We have amazing cultural momentum and society. And right now, a lot of malicious actors are just chopping it down and profiting. And unfortunately, a lot of these tech companies are allowing and enabling that. But at the root of the problem, it's actually the people that are trying to manipulate and dismantle society. And, and I don't know that we can expect that some of these companies that were really just trying to do something else entirely are going to have the answer to that problem. How can we advance VR responsibly? What advice could you give to others? The more we can align our motivations with human well-being, the better we'll be as a society and as a planet, hopefully. Like when Chris and I started trying to make this most recent service of Supernatural, the motivation was somewhat selfish. We need to get ourselves off the couch. We're not getting any younger. Uh, we're certainly not getting healthier by computing for 50 hours a week. How can we try to improve our, our mindfulness and our physical, our bodies? But I think the motivation was to bring that to as many people as we can. You know, in, in the U.S., we have a serious health crisis. We're, we're trending towards the majority of Americans being obese in, in a few years. That's a serious problem. And there's an opportunity to try to say, how can we look at what these technologies afford us and how can we apply them to really trying to make people's lives better when people aren't even a part of that process, when the machines are just trading 
you know, on the behalf of the pre-programmed objective, which is profit, 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 realigning with how many of the ideas of capitalism in theory were supposed to be operating was benefit, right? Like there's some kind of correlation between financial value and benefit to humans. And it feels like sometimes we're getting too far astray from that. I think some of what's happening with policies around investments in environmental kind of incentives and offsets and you know, you can b- debate whether they're effective and whether they're doing enough, but at least the idea is that we're spending brain cycles to marry that back up is uh, really important for the future of humans, I think. And that concludes our episode for today. Thank you to Aaron Koblen for stretching not only our imaginations, but also our bodies. Influence is hosted by me, Damian Bradfield. Our producer is Rachel Swaby, with editing from Elise Hugh and Audrey No. Sound engineering by Mark Bush. Our WeTransfer creative producer is Linda Mertens. And a massive thank you to our friends at Center Sound Studio here in Amsterdam. You can find Influence on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. You can follow me on Twitter at DJ Bradfield. And you can send me guest recommendations for this show there too, please. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer produced in association with Reasonable Volume. See you next week.